Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the hour of Hillsdale, the last hour of the week when we both review the events of the week when we can with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, and also step back up to 30,000 feet and pick up one of the great works of literature or art and talk about it. Today, we're going to do that not only with Dr. Arn, but also with Dr. David Whalen of Hillsdale College. Of course, if you've not heard this before, Hillsdale College is the lantern of the north up in Michigan. Yes, there's something good in Michigan besides University of Michigan Law School, my alma mater. There's Hillsdale College, and you can go and sample not only all the conversations that we have had in this series about great books, And they are available at hillsdale.edu, but also the amazing and wonderful free series of lectures on the Constitution, on the progressive era, on all that has happened in America. Hillsdale also has a guide to Western civilization. It's all free. If you're a homeschooling parent, you ought to be making sure that your kids listen to this. And by the way, young people, if you're looking for a college, it's not too late to apply to hillsdale.edu. The kind of conversations we have every single week on this show are the kind of conversations you'll have every single day, often in the course of the day at Hillsdale College. Applications, of course, at hillsdale.edu. So we'll have an odyssey about the odyssey today after the break, but we begin with Dr. Arn. Hello, Dr. Arn. Welcome back. How are you, Hugh? Great to be with you. I am terrific. Are you down in Virginia still, or are you back in D.C. or Michigan? I mean, I just, I just, I just dropped back from many travels. I went from D.C. to Florida. And now I'm right now. I'm at the Detroit airport. Oh my goodness, the Detroit airport. Are you going to then motorcade back over? Because you always travel with, you know, a vast motorcade when you drive back as the I president. Usually it's you. It's usually it's me and, and my vice president John Cervini. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you have a chance to go and talk to the Republicans? I know you were planning on doing that. Did you get down to Williamsburg? I talked to them on Wednesday morning. What did you say to them? Because they actually took some coherent steps today. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I talked to I was the breakfast speaker, and uh, I talked to them about what the part, Republican Party did in its founding and why it needed to do that again. And what I told them was, it's amazing that we're in a situation where we are involving ourselves in treating Americans as members of races and classes. Uh, I, I didn't think Mr. Romney did a good thing when he said he was trying to help the middle class. I think he, I think American America is the nation without class or race. And I think this whole thing about how we appeal to Hispanics, I think that's actually the same way we appeal to white people. And I gave an example of my favorite speech by Abraham Lincoln, and I read that parts of it to him, told him what it was and what it meant. And it's very beautiful. And so that was Oh, we just lost him. Uh-oh. Now he's back. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, you've got to stay in one place. So, Dr. Ron, which speech is that for the benefit of the audience? Uh, Lincoln never gave a Fourth of July speech, but on July the 10th, 1858, in Chicago, he gave what's known as the electric cord speech. And that's the most wonderful thing in the world. And I'll tell you in three minutes what it says if you want me to. Please do. He starts off and he says, around the 4th of July, we Americans always get together and talk about how great the country is and how big it's become and how wonderful everything is and what progress it's made. And we look back at the founders and we think of them as iron men. But then it's a wonderful expression. But then he said we notice a problem. 
because we are not descended from those men. We are not blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh. You hear the Bible? Of the, of the men who came before us, we came later from different countries. What connection have we? So it's kind of a wonderful rhetorical question. And then he says, but then we go back and read what they did, and we read that old declaration, and we see that they wrote in there that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. And we feel that through that declaration, we are blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the fathers who came before us. And we know that this unites the hearts of liberty-loving men everywhere in the world. That is the electric cord. Huh. And first of all, if you're not thrilled to that, you're no American. Huh. And second of all, what better thing to say to the Hispanics? And then I mentioned, shouldn't you remind people that this form of government is going to overwhelm them? And it's going to overwhelm ordinary folk first. And so we can welcome every person who carries the message of America in his heart into the system of equal rights. And that means we're not going to bureaucratize you. That's what I think should be their message. You know, I'm finding it fairly thrilling, Larry Arn, that the Republicans 200 plus, and I hope they turned out, got a... Everybody was there. Everybody was there. All right. Now they got... They got the electric cord speech, in essence, summarized and not updated, but they got reminded about its relevance to the here and the now. And how was that received by Republican congressmen? Well, uh, it was very well. I mean, I got, you know, a lot of applause. I was hazed before the speech began by Paul Ryan. Oh, that's good. And uh, but uh, it's not very hard to do, but it's good. Yeah, it's very good. He, he, and I, I ended with this. I should mention this, too. It just so happens that at the end of his career, in his last premiership, Winston Churchill banished socialism for British politics for 20 years. And he did it by a, a, a series of speeches under the title, Socialism Versus the People. And his point was, these guys who are going to control all the big industries and control everything in the country, they're going to take from you. Rich people are going to do okay. It's ordinary folk who are going to be restricted and constrained. And he made that work. So I got warm applause, and a lot of people, I mean, I was nominated for Speaker of the House by some friends of mine, but that was also partly hazing me. <laughs> and, uh, and then, I, and you know, I, I was up there for an hour, and uh, there were a lot of questions. They were good. I explained to them how Churchill banished socialism for 20 years at the end of his career. I said that he, in, in from 52 to 55, he ran on the campaign Socialism Versus the People. And the, and the speeches are beautiful. And he explains how this kind of overwhelming government that's been, that was being built in Britain then and in America now, it's ordinary folk who are going to be victimized by it. The rich people will make their deals. And, you know, he won a majority, and the socialism didn't come back for 20 years. And so I said to them, I said, I don't understand why you think passing simple laws that everyone can understand and help to enforce and that treat everyone the same, whereas the laws that are being passed now, they're laws that favor people who've got $500 an hour lawyers. Why do you think you're in a disadvantaged position with the people? Hmm. Why and why was Hispanics? And so anyway, that was the tone of it. And it it was and you know I will tell you, Hugh, 
I thought the spirit in the place was good. And the whole place, the whole time I was there, which was for about 14 hours. Well, I'm very charmed that they, they invited you, and I, I'm encouraged that they listened. And, and the question that I asked, judging from their question, do you think they will be uh, uh, energized and come out and actually make arguments to attempt to persuade as opposed to ducking and not engaging and avoiding difficult conversations? Well, certainly the best of them will do that, and I think the best of them may be given more rain now. And I think one thing that's happened, one hears it, is that Boehner is tired of this negotiating with Obama. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a thankless task, right? What does he do? He lectures you, he, he changes his mind, he publishes what you say. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, but and the so, problem, you've got this... What, in- this entire class of hangers-on in Washington, D.C., you know, the rent seekers, and they, as soon as they leave the room, they begin to say, oh, that's very nice, that's very academic, he's a philosopher, and philosophers are philosophers, but we've got to cut a deal, and my client needs this kind of special language in the tax bill, and it it requires resolve not to get sucked back into D.C. And that's it. And And, you know, these are very, you know, the intensity of the times is changing things, and there isn't any reason to believe that it won't change them for the better, as well as in some ways for the worse. And so I was talking to a lot of people. I mean, remember, they invited me, and I was a, you know, a featured speaker, and, and what they want to know is, how can we stop these disasters from happening? And, and, you know, I think that you have to talk the language of America, and, and I do believe that Mitt Romney failed to do that running for president, and I, and I don't hold it against him. He doesn't know that language very well, but I think that, that it hasn't been proved that that's not the thing that will work as it worked for Abraham Lincoln. That is, uh, that's very encouraging that they had you, what you said, and how it was received, uh, Larry Arn. When we come back, we're going to turn back to a man who, uh, who sort of set the standard for endurance, Odysseus, as uh, the dialogue, the Hillsdale Dialogues continue on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, Americans, Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogues mark the hour of Hillsdale each week, where I huddle up with one or more of the great distinguished faculty members of Hillsdale College, in Michigan, hillsdale.edu. Last few weeks, it's been Dr. Larry Arnn. President Arnn is back with us. He's joined today, though, by Dr. David Whalen, also of Hillsdale College. Dr. Whalen, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Hugh. It's great to be here. Now, uh, Larry has been introduced before, but tell people a little bit about what you teach routinely at Hillsdale. I routinely teach English literature, um, uh, Victorian and 20th century British literature in particular, um, uh, authors such as Browning and Tennyson and uh, Evelyn Waugh, the, the great writers of the past two, three centuries. But really, here uh, we tend to be generalists. So I have taught courses in the Renaissance, uh, drama, lyric, poetry, all kinds of things. Now, Dr. Arn has spent a couple of weeks talking with me about Homer's Iliad, and today we're going to go to the other great epic poem. So I'm going to let Larry Arn set up again. Why is it, Larry, that the Odyssey is more well-known, perhaps even better loved in, a, in modern times than the Iliad? Well, it's a happier story. <laughs> there's, there's that. It doesn't end with the death of the heroes and their partial lived or full disgrace. Um, and also, 
the Odyssey is great uh, uh, with examples of the saving power of good behavior, of the practice of the virtues, because there's a kind of justice that runs through it, and in the end, there's a real hero who wins through because of good decisions he makes and moral action he undertakes. So in some ways, it's more satisfying. Now, Dr. Whalen, I think the Odyssey may be the first real story I ever knew. I think I, I had it read to me, and I read it many, many times. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who had the same experience, but many, many more who will not have heard of it in recent years. Could you do us the favor of, of sort of summarizing what the story arc is before we begin to break it down and why it is considered one of the classics? Sure, that's that's a, a bit of a challenge because the, the the hallmark of this story is that it's really about a dozen and a half stories wrapped up into one. It's uh, um, one of the reasons it's often read to children is because it's a rollicking adventure on yep. one level. One, uh, one adventure and disaster after another. But it's a story of uh, one of the Trojan, or one of the Greek warriors at Troy, who spends 10 years returning home. Uh, he is uh, the king of Ithaca, and he has a small army with him. But he finds returning home very difficult because he's always um, sidetracked by this or that um, um, uh, island adventure that awaits him. He will pull into this island and half of his crew will be killed by the Lacergonians or he'll pull into that island and uh, another group of crew uh, will be turned into swine by a, uh, a divine Circe. So, so it's, it's really a series of adventures, but behind all of these adventures is the 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 persistent desire for home, for reunion with his wife and his son, Telemachus, and um, um, uh, this combined with his own kind of restless curiosity, restless energy that, that frankly causes a good bit of the trouble. And Dr. Whalen, at the end of the, of the uh, Greek rainbow is Penelope, who uh, in, in the Iliad, there are wives, but they're not really heroines, but Penelope is really a heroine. Is she the first heroine in literature? Gosh, that's a good question. I, I don't know if she's the first, but she's probably the greatest, um, the greatest, uh, certainly of the early ones. Penelope is in contrast to the very engine of the Iliad. The, the engine of the Iliad, of course, is, is a domestic catastrophe, uh, the breakup of marriage and the flight of a wife. Uh, uh, Penelope is the model of fidelity, and she is the um, uh, the very opposite of both uh, Helen and Clytemnestra, whose figures sort of haunt the entire Iliad. So yes, uh, uh, Dr. Arne mentioned that this is a happy story. Part of the reason that it's happy is because it's the the solidity. It's about the solidity, stability, um, even amidst peril of the family and of the home, mostly through Penelope. Now, Dr. Arne, you have the great good fortune of being married to a Penelope, who is also a great heroine, because she has, in fact, been putting up with you for as long as I've known you. And so you, you might have a dog in this fight, but, but in terms of why this is sniffed at, I believe, in the Academy more than the Iliad, why isn't it at the same level of respect or taught as much? It's read more by popular uh, readers, but it's taught less. Well, I, you know, remember, the Iliad is, is a great assertion of will. I mean, the reason Achilles comes to grief is because he lacks restraint. He rages. And, and his magnificence, his wonder, his, his tremendous martial virtues and beauty are just transcendent, except 
he, he falls. And so it's, it's a story of that kind of thing. Whereas the Odyssey, you know, first of all, think of the kinds of things that happens. Uh, a goddess turns a bunch of uh, Odysseus's men into swine uh, in their upper torso, and he gets them out of there. Now he commits an infidelity with her to do it, but he's forced to it. In another place, uh, the, uh, Odysseus and his men are locked in a cave with a giant with one eye who's a son of Poseidon, the sea god, and, he's, and the giant is eating them. And Odysseus, he's very clever to get him drunk. And, and when he's drunk in stupor, first his idea is to kill him. And then he stops and he says, no, if I kill him, I won't be able to get the great rock away from the door, so I have to induce him to get the great rock away from the door. And so he, he does two things. It's very clever. The first thing is, he finally tells the, the, the Cyclops his name, and he says that his name is the Greek word for nobody. And then he pokes his eye out with a spear. And then when, when, when this particular Cyclops is raging and carrying on, others come to the gate, come to the door and say, who is besieging you? And he calls out, nobody, nobody. <laughs> and so he can't get any help. They keep going away. So he has to remove the stone. So this is a man who thinks under pressure, who restrains himself, who, who, and all to win his way back to the most faithful woman in human history until the birth of Maya Penelope. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a faithful son. We have a minute to the break, uh, Larry Arn. Take us out and tell people about the young man. Well, Telemachus is, uh, first of all, he's named after sort of the end of war, if you translate his name. And he is, and you know, he's in this house, and the house of the king, and there's a court there, right? And these courts, these courtiers become suitors of the mother. And it goes on for a decade, for goodness sake. And in decency, the royal family has to marry again. And so she puts him off by saying she has to finish this thing she's weaving for her father. And at night, she weaves all day and unravels all night. Well, the son is caught up in all this and is badly treated by these guys, and he's growing up, and he looks for a way out, and he goes on several ventures to find his father and meet some of the great heroes from Troy. And so Telemachus is a tremendous young man. We come back, we'll, we'll talk about him, whether there are any tel- uh, Telemachuses at Hillsdale. Uh, don't go anywhere, America, except to hillsdale.edu. My guests, Dr. Arn and Dr. Whalen, will be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the Our America Hugh Hewitt. Last hour of the radio week, and I spent it with my friends from Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. In the Hillsdale Dialogues, talking about the great works of literature and art. And uh, last few weeks, we've been talking about The Iliad by Homer. Today, I'm talking about The Odyssey. And my guests are Dr. Larry Arn and Dr. David Whalen. Uh, Dr. Whalen, as we went to break, we were talking about Odysseus's son, also known as Ulysses, of course, in, in the uh, English translation. Do your students read um, The Odyssey? Do you make the, the Hillsdale uh, students read Odyssey? 
Oh, yes. Most of our students do read the Odyssey. It's read in a freshman English course. And uh, you asked a moment ago, are there any Telemachuses at Hillsdale? And, and uh, in fact, you might say there are nothing but Telemachuses. And, and so expa- expand on that. What do you mean by that? What are the virtues of Telemachus? Well, Telemachus, as Dr. Ard said, Telemachus is growing up and he's suffering this, this humiliation, having all these suitors abuse him and abuse his mother in his presence. Um, uh, he's too young to do anything about it. Well, Athena, the goddess, uh, comes in disguise to Telemachus and says, you know, you need to go from here. You need to leave. You need to leave home, go out into the world, and, and learn, if you can, something of your father's fate and his history. And, and she knows exactly what's going on with uh, Odysseus, but she tells him this because she knows that Telemachus needs to grow up. He needs to leave home. He needs to en- encounter great men and, 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 and great issues and conquer them in a certain respect. Uh, I don't mean a military respect. I mean, he means to win the respect of, of great and older people. And Telemachus does does just that. So, so the quip, uh, Hillsdale is full of Telemachus. This is really uh, a reference to the fact that our, our college students not only read Telemachus, when they read him, they identify with him. They have recently left home. They're, as I say, mostly freshmen. They've left home and they are experiencing great things and they're having to master them. He comes back eventually to the island and makes common cause with his father in restoring his rule. Larry Arndt, there's a I can remember this from, you know, 50 years ago now, where an old and aged servant encounters the returning Odysseus and spies him out, understands who he is. It's very moving, but it's interesting that that's part of this as well, and it resonates through the years. Yeah, well, that's, you, you meet, uh, I think there are only two servants left in Odysseus' household who remain faithful. And they don't, neither of them is ambitious for anything. And, and there, uh, many of the rest of them are connivers. And when uh, Odysseus encounters them, he discovers, because he returns home concealed as a beggar. And so they treat him well. And then when he reveals himself to him, uh, he, to them, they are loyal. And he and, and uh, Odysseus's father, Laertes, and Telemachus and these two servants, they kill all these suitors. Yeah, they kill them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very satisfying. Uh, Penelope comes up with a with a, a test. She she says now she's going to announce that she's going to give away and pick one of them, and and it's just full of wonderful symbolism. It has to be the one who can string Odysseus's bow, strong enough to do that, and then fire an arrow from it. Shoot an arrow from it through twelve axe handles, and so none of them can even string the bow. And then the beggar Odysseus walks up, and he strings it, and he fires through the axe handles. And then the servants and Telemachus and Odysseus's father lock all the doors, and they kill them all. <laughs> so it's just, it's just. It's just one of the happiest events in all of it. It's justice, is what it is. Justice. Now, Doctor Whalen, what's interesting the the recognition of the missing or the sudden understanding. This is the road to Emmaus that Christian listeners will recognize that uh, you're disguised and then you are made obvious. Is this a recurrent? You've been teaching a lot of literature for a lot of years. Is this one of the devices that have been used really from the time of Homer to always the same effect of satisfaction? 
it, oh, very much so. Not, maybe not always to the effect of satisfaction, but this business of disguise and revelation is, is both a device in literature, but also a, a reality of human experience. I think that's why literary artists uh, use it so often. Um, um, what, 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 in many respects, people are, are uh, uh, disguised to themselves, and then it takes great events so that their own natures can become revealed to the world and, and, and to themselves. I mean, in the case of uh, uh, you were just discussing these servants. Uh, w- one of the ways in which, although it's not a disguise, it, it is nevertheless a revelation, uh, occurs in the novel, is that the, that Eurycleia, this old woman, is is faithful to Penelope and Odysseus as well, uh, just as uh, the, the swineherd Eumaeus is faithful to Odysseus and Penelope. And, and this means that the, the great fidelity of the aristocrat Penelope is, is not the only place that virtue is to be found. That virtue is to be found high and low. We don't often see it, perhaps, in the, in the low, but there it is. Homer exposes it uh, for us. And so, uh, although it's a very aristocratic poem, it, it clearly understands virtue as belonging to humans everywhere or anywhere. Be right back on the Hilltail Dialogues Hour. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I sure hope you are enjoying this. I've asked you each week. Let me know what you think of the Hillsdale Dialogues, and the email is, is also supportive. They have been transcribed by Generalissimo. They will be posted at hillsdale.edu along with amazing courses by the professors who populate that wonderful campus in Michigan available free uh, for the taking and for the enriching of your life. Uh, My guest this week, Dr. Larry Young, Dr. David Whalen. All right, now let's talk about Ulysses, about Odysseus. And uh, you referenced in the very first conversation we had in the series, Larry Arn, that he's the counterpart to Achilles. He is wise. He is cunning. Um, he is not without his flaws, but he's a completely different sort of leader than Achilles. Good or bad? Uh, better, yeah. He's and see, he, you know, especially in the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus appears as a great warrior. You know, it ends in a battle, and. Uh, and he wins against overwhelming numbers. And these people are all bad people. But along the way, Odysseus calculates. He proves uh, he, 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 he's the one who thought of the Trojan horse. And that story is told in the Odyssey. It's not in the Iliad. And, and, um, and so he, he thinks of ruses. He takes care. He listens to the gods when they give him advice. He is respectful. He has a massive self-restraint, and there are many places in the Odyssey where others in Odysseus's company eat something they shouldn't or take something they shouldn't, give in to a desire when they should not, and they're killed for it. And Odysseus, over and over again, does not do that. And that's a, a moral example. And to go back to your question about why the Iliad might be more uh, popular these days, is that we're not so much into moral examples as we used to be, and we look for ways to tear them down. Now, Dr. Whalen, the counterpart to that, of course, is nobody gets out alive if you're in Ulysses' company. Odysseus doesn't bring anybody back. And so is there an undercurrent here that he did pretty well by himself, but along the way every single member of his crew is dead? 
Well, like, as Dr. Arnn said, he's not perfect. Um, <laughs> he, uh, uh, he is magnificent, and he has enormous self-restraint, but he also has something of an adolescent's uh, whimsicality. I mean, he, he is insatiably curious, and so he will, he will see smoke rising from a distant hill and, and say, let's go over there and see what, what, what it is. And his men will say, no, 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 <laughs> let's just get back on the ship and sail away. And he's, no, no, let's go see. And, of course, a number of them end up dead. So, so it's not that he's wildly irresponsible. He, he is his name. He's called uh, a polytropos, or a man of many turnings. He's very wily. He's very crafty, um, and and he he does exercise enormous self control, but not all the time, and not about everything. Uh, there is a a famous episode where he lashes himself to the mass, Larry Arn, because he wishes to exist. So he's very sensual as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's 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 these Greeks. But see, part of David David's point, which is true, is is made by the fact that these guys are ancient Greeks. You know what? What are they? They're not Puritans. And so, uh, when I say self restraint, you know, he wanted to listen to the sirens, right? Yes. He stopped up the men's ear, and the sirens call to you and tempt you onto the rocks, and you're killed, right? They ruin your life. He he wants to hear them. So he doesn't stop up his own ears; he lashes himself to the mast, and uh, and that you see is uh, that's that's David's point, <laughs> and yeah. it's true. Now, now let, let, we've got just a few minutes left, so uh, it, it's amazing how much of this. You called it a novel, Dr. Whalen. That was interesting. I was going to say poem, but you called it a novel. Uh, is in our language and in our ordinary speech, the siren song, uh, Sillan Charbotus of, you know, what people want to describe. But I'm not sure, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, that people even know where those come from anymore. Do you mean the sirens? Yeah, well, just the, the whole number of references that have come to us from Homer that people refer to, but sort of unwittingly almost. No, no, that's right. It, it's, it, it populates our language uh, in so deeply that most of us don't even know we're referring to it. I, by the way, I did misspoke, uh, speak by uh, saying novel. It is, of course, a great epic poem, but... but it like Shakespeare. You know the old joke about Shakespeare um, that uh, somebody said uh, he's not so great. He just strung all these all these uh, famous lines together. <laughs> um, well, the same could be said of Homer. Is there is there a part of it that you want to comment on? You know, a couple of minutes each that that I haven't touched on yet. Well, I, I, I might say that an example of this self-restraint is in Odysseus's dealing with um, uh, a very young girl, an adolescent girl named Nausicaa. Um, he is in desperate need of her assistance. Um, she has something that he needs, notably clothing. He's washed ashore on this island. He has no clothes. He's exhausted. He's in desperate shape. And there's young adolescent girl uh, encounters him. And this is this is obviously an awkward, nearly impossible situation. He could just take what she has, that is, some clothing, clothe himself, and then and then uh, uh, go into town and see what he can do for himself. But instead, he wins her over to his cause. He, he holds himself back, he exercises restraint, and uh, while normally he should grasp her knees and beg for her help, he doesn't touch her. He's naked, you know. Um, he holds himself back, he, he, he talks his way into her trust, and that's, that's just a magnificent scene, a magnificent moment. Hey, Larry Arn, any, anything I have missed that we've set the table here and, and tempt people to go pick up the Odysseus? Well, if you want to, I, I repeat that it's this great long journey 
and it's full of adventure and frustration, and it culminates in a fantastic result. You ought to go read it. Dr. Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College, Dr. David Whalen, thanks to you both. Uh, I would recommend to anyone. Is it Lattimore, by the way? Did he do the, uh, the Odyssey as well, Dr. Whalen? Yes, he did. That's the best translation, the one you recommend? Uh, it's a very good one. The one that is most often recommended now is by Fagels. Okay. Either one, and they're often almost free, if not absolutely free, if you've got a Kindle or an iPhone from which to download. Uh, indulge. Next week, America, we're going to turn to another very old book, Genesis. And uh, we begin, I don't know how long we're going to be in the Bible with our friends from Hillsdale, but they do have a certain order that you follow if you're going to go from the beginning of Western civilization to the end, and you start with Homer, and it's not long before you end up over in uh, the Old Testament in Scripture. Thanks to you both. I'll be right back, America, to wrap up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.